Tomorrow night, um, 5 o'clock, just right down the road here, we're going to sing songs and read scripture and drink hot chocolate and eat cookies. I mean, what could be better than that? So come on and join us. Make sure you do bring a chair or else you'll be sitting on um, some hard, cold concrete. Uh, I think the weather is going to be great, but you might want to uh, bring a blanket just in case, and uh, it should be a lot of fun. I have another announcement for you as well before we dive into God's Word, and it is a big one. Uh, some of you already know what I'm going to say. This may be the worst kept secret in church history. Uh, but we have been praying that God would give us a space to worship that allows us to grow a little bit more and allows us to, to care for our children uh, well and gives us some space for that. And the Lord has answered our prayer. And we are going to be moving as a congregation, our worship service at least, to Goodwin Fraser Elementary School which is uh, just outside the loop off of Business 35. And uh, we're going to do that the first weekend of February. So February the 3rd will be the first Sunday that we will be worshiping in a new location. We're really excited about it. Some, uh, a handful of you have actually toured the school and seen kind of how we can set up worship and the space that it's going to allow for us. I think you all are going to really enjoy it. It's going to be a real blessing for us. So keep that on your calendars. February the 3rd, we will be moving. Pretty exciting. I thought maybe we'd get like a round of applause for that one. That, yeah, that's kind of fun. Thank you. <laughs> that's right. Uh, okay, let's open your Bibles, if you will, to uh, Isaiah. We're in chapter 52, the end of 52. We'll be reading through all of 53. This is a big chunk of Scripture. If you've been with us over the last month, you know we have been studying the servant songs in Isaiah, as they are called. They are simply places that Isaiah prophesies about what is to come and specifically talks about the Messiah. The Messiah, the king who will come and rescue his people. And he names this person the servant, the servant of the Lord. So we have been studying the servant of the Lord and we have gotten really to the pinnacle of this. Really, this is, it's been building to this passage, and this is the most glorious, though maybe uh, surprisingly glorious, passages, not only in the servant songs of Isaiah, but in all of the scriptures. So listen now as I read to you about Jesus, written about 500 years before his birth. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told to them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he's heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one who from men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. But surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that's before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many, and he makes intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Lord, what a privilege to be able to read a passage like this. Uh, Even as heavy as it is on what we typically think of as a light day. Lord, will you remind us the, the weight of what you have done for us? And as we study this passage, Lord, will you even increase in us the joy of Christmas as we get to know even more fully what that joy is about? Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth, that the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, that you would be present among us, and that we might see you more clearly through your word. We do pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Christmas, oftentimes, you know, we think of, again, as the time where we get to gather with family, where we get to give gifts, where we get to sing songs, where we get to feast, where we get to enjoy each other. And of course, Christmas is all of those good things. But the Bible says that it's more. The Bible says that it's actually the announcement of the king. As we've been talking about over the last three weeks, the announcement of a king who would rule in justice, the announcement of a king who would rule in righteousness. The announcement of a king who would, as we said this morning, be the prince of peace and make all things new. That is what the Bible proclaims. Uh, Or the way that J.R.R. Tolkien says it in The Lord of the Rings, that he would make all the sad things come untrue. That is what we celebrate in Christmas. We sing songs like we've sung today, joy to the world. We sing, come, O Emmanuel, rejoice, your king has come, and it is appropriate for us to rejoice. But it's funny, isn't it? We read this passage in Isaiah. We talk about rejoicing. We talk about this king coming. We celebrate Christmas. And here in this passage in Isaiah, it reads kind of like a funeral procession, doesn't it? Some of you may have thought that, man, exciting Christmas sermon, preacher. This is going to be awesome. We're going to talk about suffering and death and transgression, whatever that big word means. And yay, Christmas, right? Well, here's the thing. This is the best news you could ever get on Christmas. (laughs) All of this suffering and death, all of this rejection is the best news you could get on Christmas. Because what Christmas is, it is the arrival of the king who would be rejected. It is the arrival of the king who is rejected. And I'm here to tell you this morning that that's the best news that you could ever get. 
Let's look a little more deeply at that. If we start even kind of in the beginning of chapter, I mean, yeah, chapter 53, we hear Isaiah say this in verse 2. He grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. See, oftentimes we desire people to lead us who look good and kind of match the part. This was true in the ancient world. In the ancient world, very oftentimes, the king who would lead his people needed to kind of play the right part. If you think back in the Old Testament, when Israel elected their first king, a guy named Saul, the king right before David, they had been crying out for a king, and God had told them over and over, you don't need a king, I'm your king. Finally, he allows them to, to, to have a king, and who do they choose? The very first thing that we actually read about Saul is that he is the most handsome man around. And he's the tallest. That's what we hear about Saul. Those are his qualifications for leading God's people. He's super good looking, and he's really tall. Now, before we kind of start thinking, oh, those stupid ancient people, you know, how they did it back then, and they always elected the best looking people and tallest people, and like, we're modern people. We've totally gotten over that, right? We don't have to deal with that anymore. Really? Do you know that uh, in the history of the United States, 70% of the popular vote has gone to the taller candidate? 70%. It it has been, studies have been shown that that we like candidates with deeper voices because they sound stronger. And you're you're really in trouble if you're a woman because you've got to be really pretty and have a deep voice. And then we're like super confused, right? And we don't know what to do. We, We want people to lead us that are attractive and tall. Since television, it's actually gotten worse. Now, there are, two, there are two little exceptions. Barack Obama was not the taller candidate, and he won. George W. Bush was not the taller candidate, and he won. However, Obama's 6'1", Bush is 6 foot. Uh, the, the, I think the average height in American male is 5'9 They are both considered universally attractive. We like our kings, we like our leaders to be people that look really good and people that are tall and seem like they're strong and we get this great kind of warm, fuzzy feeling like they're going to lead us so well. Well, Isaiah comes out and he says, you know what, the Messiah is coming. Guess what? He's not going to look great. He's not going to be taller than everybody else. He's not going to be better looking than everybody else. And people didn't know what to do with that. Isaiah said, this is what's going to happen. He's going to be pushed to the side. He's going to be pushed to the margins because he doesn't look like you want him to. He's going to be pushed kind of to the side because he's not tall and strong like you think he should be. It's, we still struggle with this about Jesus, don't we? I mean, think about any picture you've ever seen of Jesus, right? I mean, he's like, he's like an ex-polo model turned hippie. That's what he looks like. He's like blue eyes and long flowing hair, right? I mean, every picture you've seen of Jesus, he's great looking dude. If you've seen The Passion of the Christ, Jim Caviezel, who played Jesus in that movie, he was directly before that movie, he was cast as Edmond Dantes in The Count of Monte Cristo. Okay? In The Count of Monte Cristo, we get a description of that character. And here's the description of that character. He's got piercing blue eyes. He's got long, wavy hair that women love to tussle. The jaw of a nobleman and tall and stood erect like a Prussian soldier. That's the description of the guy who played Jesus. We don't know what to do with somebody who doesn't look the part. We don't know what to do with somebody who doesn't seem like they are the conquering hero. 
And so what do we do? We reject him. Isaiah says this is the way it's going to be. The king is going to show up and he is going to be rejected. And that's what happens. Not only do we never read in the New Testament of anything other than that, we never read of anything, uh, of any great way that Jesus looks, but we actually read that he was rejected by, well, everybody. First of all, the establishment, and then in his death, at the end of his life, all of his friends left him. Probably his best friend, his closest disciple, Peter, denied even knowing him. Christmas is the announcement, the celebration even, of a king who has come to be rejected by mankind. That's what Christmas is. Now let's make it a little bit more personal too, right? Because not only does Isaiah say here that the Messiah is going to be rejected by men, right? By the general kind of population. But he actually says over and over he's going to be rejected by his own people. I mean, just listen to the language here. He had no former majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. We esteemed him not. We esteemed him stricken. We, like sheep, have gone astray. Isaiah is talking to God's people. And he is saying, okay, you're the people that are supposed to know better, and guess what? You're going to reject him as well. He's talking to people like you and me. He's talking to church people. And what he is saying is that the Messiah is going to come, and not only is everybody out there going to reject him, but you are too. Friends, we do this as well. I think the clear implication as you read this passage, as you read through the New Testament, is that you are supposed to put yourself in the position of one of his disciples who left him at the end. The clear implication is that if we were in that position, we would have done the same thing. The best news that we've ever heard, the greatest thing that we've ever seen, put right in front of our faces and we would reject him. This was uh, a few Christmases ago. Uh... My son Anderson received this really great gift. It was kind of the, the best gift of the family. And, uh, we, you know, they got up at, I don't know, 5.30 or something ridiculous, right? And um, we all walked down the stairs and kind of came into the room where all the presents are. And there, right in front of the Christmas tree and in front of all the other presents, really like you could not get around it if you walked in the door, was this beautiful, red, shiny new bike, it was like his first real bike. It was like a big boy bike. It only had two wheels on it. It was awesome. And he came into that room, and he kind of walked over there, and the bike's right in front of him, and he gave literally like a glance like that at the bike, and then he turned and went this way and started fiddling with like these little bitty presents that were totally worthless. He walked right by the best thing in the room. Isn't that what we do oftentimes at Christmas? We get so kind of like fixated on the trappings, on the things that we think are so fun about Christmas or maybe even about life, and we just walk right by the best news. We get so wrapped up in how am I going to feel more rested or more accepted or how am I going to feel more pleasure or how am I going to feel maybe more power or accomplishment this year? And we start planning all of this list of the things that we're going to do better next year. They're going to make us better people. And we totally miss the best thing in the room that is Jesus, the king who has come to save us. Christmas is the announcement of a king who is rejected, not just by people, but by us. A king rejected. Here's how it gets uh, even harder, I think, for us is that not only 
Is Christmas the announcement of the king rejected by those in the world outside and by God's people and even in our own hearts? But listen to this, and this is even hard to hear, is that Christmas is actually the announcement of a king rejected by his own father. Listen as I read these words again. In verse 10, let me back up a little bit. Verse 7, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, he was led like a lamb to slaughter. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. He was cut off from the land of the living. He was made a grave with the wicked. And then in verse 10, we hear the reason for all of this. Isaiah says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him, to put him to grief. Did I read that right? Jesus was afflicted. Jesus was oppressed. Jesus was uh, counted unrighteous even though he was perfect. Jesus was buried with sinners. Jesus was crucified by the Romans. And it was because this was God's will. Some of you thought, you know, man, we started out with like a really crummy Christmas sermon. And now we're like just crummy Christianity. Because, you know, this sounds terrible, preacher. How in the world could this be? How could God actually do this to his son? Let me see if, if I can explain it this way. I, I was told the other day, I don't know if you know this, uh, Merriam-Webster's, you know, the, the dictionary people, they do this thing every year where they do a, a word of the year. And they give this one word that kind of encapsulates, uh, you know, what, what is it that our culture is kind of feeling, the general cultural consciousness, that what word is it that would kind of encapsulate that? Guess what the word was for 2018, this year? Justice. Somebody already knows. Justice is the word that they said encapsulates the way that our culture is just feeling, the things that we are longing for, the, the kind of, if you boil down everything that we desire and long for and what our minds are all about right now, it is this word, justice. Well, guess what? Guess what? That's actually the answer to the question in verse 10. How could God do this to his son? The answer is justice. How could a loving God do that to his son? Well, the answer is justice. Let me give you a little background. What the Bible says is that all of man, all of the world was created good. That God actually created things and it was good. And he called his people, those he had created in his image, to go and spread that goodness, his glory, to all of the earth. That they were to be his images that spread his glory to all of the earth. But mankind chose to rebel against God and brought all of the world into a state of brokenness. Part of that, a state that you and I are now in, that our hearts are wayward, that as we sing, oftentimes we are prone to wander, that our general attitude before the Lord changes our hearts is to say, you know what, I can do this on my own. I will go find what I need and I will do it on my own. And so we go searching for things that are going to make us feel significant. And we pursue things like power and acceptance and wealth and uh, pleasure and rest. And we do so in ways that make us feel like we are significant or powerful or we have some sort of value, right? And we do that oftentimes in ways that even put others down. So we seek power in ways that actually take it from others who we should be giving power to. We seek kind of rule and authority by oftentimes giving others, you know, preying on the vulnerabilities of others. And so what you see actually in the world all around is this search for our own significance that ends up breaking down others and taking away even the image of God from those around us. So what is God going to do when he looks at a world and he sees that the good order and good rule that he has set up has been broken? 
What is God going to do when he sees those looking for significance, even though they should be finding it in him, when he sees them finding it in themselves and actually in degrading those others around him? Well, what's the word that we cry out for? We want justice, right? We want to see the guilty punished. We want to see justice and right order and righteousness happen. We want that. And by the way, if you don't want that from God, you shouldn't be worshiping that God. We want to worship a God who is just. But here's the problem. Is that we're the perpetrators. We want to cry out for justice, but we're the ones who deserve the punishment. And so what God has done is what he tells us over and over in this passage is that he has fulfilled his justice by taking the punishment upon himself. The announcement that we get of this king who is rejected is not just rejected by people and by us, but he is rejected for us. Just listen how many times we hear this just in chapter 53. Uh, We esteemed him not... But he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement was upon him that brought us peace. By his wounds we are healed. Friends, over and over and over what Isaiah is saying to us is that God has actually taken the just punishment that we deserve. And he's put it on himself in the form of his son, Jesus, who has come to die for us. If you're familiar with uh, the the part of Scripture that describes Jesus' crucifixion, you'll remember the trial that he's under with Pontius Pilate, who's the Roman governor at the time. And Pilate can't really understand why the Jews, uh, Jesus' own people, want to kill him so bad. So he comes up with this idea. He says, well, here's what I'll do. I'll just take him back here, and we'll beat him really good, and we'll give him some lashes, and we'll beat him up, and then we'll put him in front of people, and we'll show him how bloody he is, and then maybe they'll say, okay, great, that's enough. But they don't. They say, no, no, it's not enough that you would beat him. We want him to die. Isaiah actually gives us the theological angle behind that. And what Isaiah tells us is that when Pilate presents him to the people, he's actually presenting him to God. And what God says is that's not enough. Because the punishment does not fit the crime. The punishment of just being beaten does not fit the crime of the sins of the world. And so what God says is he must die. He must be crushed for the iniquity, the sins, the unrighteousness of the people. Friends, if if Merriam-Webster could come up with a word that describes all of that, it would simply be love. Love that has never been known before. A seminary professor of mine told us this story in St. Louis, where we were in seminary, uh, there was a time where there, was, there were two brothers. Um, they went out to play, and they went out to play kind of by the banks of the Mississippi River in St. Louis. And they would play around these big piles that they would dredge the bottom of the river and dump these piles of silt and dirt and rocks kind of onto the edge of the river. And the kids loved to go play there. One older brother, one younger brother. And one day as they were playing, what they found out is that sometimes in those piles there would be these air pockets that would develop within them. And as they were playing on them, that air pocket actually collapsed and the whole pile collapsed in over them. As the rescuers, the searchers were coming to find the children, they actually came in, they found the younger brother, and he was buried up to his neck 
just so that he could breathe, he had his chin up like this. And they started to uncover him, and they began to ask him what happened. And he says, you know, I have a brother here who was playing with me. And they said, where, where is your brother that we can find him? And he said, I'm standing on his shoulders. His brother had died so that his younger brother could live. That, that is what the Bible tells us that Jesus has done for us. This king who has come not only to rule in righteousness and justice and peace, but to actually come and to lay his life down. To lay his life down as a sacrifice so that we might have life. The Father has come. <laughs> it's so hard even to just get your mind around it. To desire that his son would be crushed and smitten so that we wouldn't. So that we wouldn't be crushed. How do we respond to this? Let me give you just one example, actually, that we find in the Bible. Because there's a story, actually, about a man who responds to this very passage. If you flip over in Acts chapter 8, we're introduced to a guy named Philip, who is a really great preacher of the Lord. Uh, He's preaching all throughout the land. He's actually healing people. He's proclaiming the gospel. And while he's doing that, he meets this Ethiopian man. A man who's come from Ethiopia, which is a long way away, and he's ridden in his chariot and he's come to Jerusalem to come because he's intrigued by the God of the Hebrews. He's intrigued by this God, but he doesn't totally understand him yet. And he's sitting in his chariot and he's opened up the Bible, the Old Testament, and he is reading this passage. He's reading Isaiah 53. And as he's passing by, Philip is there and Philip basically says, what are you reading? And the Ethiopian man says, I'm reading this passage in Isaiah, but I don't totally understand it. Who's he talking about? Who is this? There's this figure that shows up, the servant of the Lord. I don't know who it is. Can you explain it to me? And so what Philip does is he crawls up in the chariot and he simply says this. Yeah, I can explain it to you. It's easy. It's Jesus. The one that Isaiah is talking about here. The long-awaited king who has come to set his people free. The long-awaited king who has come even to lay down his life for those who have have, uh, despised him and rejected him. It's Jesus. And the Ethiopian man says, well, if that's the case, count me in. I want in on this. And so they find a stream of water and he's baptized. He becomes a Christian. Maybe that's your story this morning where you are intrigued by the God of the Bible. You're not sure kind of how to wrap your head around it. You're not even sure what it's all about. And you're wondering, what do I do with this God? What do I do with this father who would take on himself the sins of the world? What do I do with this man, Jesus? Well, let me just say, like that Ethiopian man, will you explore Jesus this morning? Will you see that it's actually Jesus who has come to be the king, not only of our lives, but of the whole world, and that he has come to lay himself down for us? Or maybe you're just simply realizing that all of your time and effort has been spent trying to figure out, how do I gain more control in my life? How do I gain more acceptance from the people around me? How do I gain more power? How do I gain more significance? And you have missed who Jesus is. Let me call you to see what Jesus proclaims to us today. That he has actually been crushed so that we won't be. That he has been declared guilty so that we might be declared righteous. That he has been cut off so that we might be included. Christmas this morning, and think about this even when you get up and open your presents in a couple of days, is the proclamation, the joyful proclamation of a king who has come 
to be rejected so that we could be accepted by God. Will you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, this passage in some ways is just almost too big for us to get our heads around. We need you to come and show us what's going on. But Lord, we do, we do know this, is that you have come to lay your life down for us. And so Lord, we ask now that we would respond in joy, that we would respond in humility, that we would respond in love, that we would respond in serving you and proclaiming you in all of the world. Thank you for the incredible love that you have given us that has fulfilled your justice and has given us your mercy. We pray all of this.